This is Alan Chartok, delighted to be in conversation today with Jim Haskell, author of Two Tents, 21 Years of Discovery on the Appalachian Trail. Jim Haskell began dreaming about hiking the 2,200-mile Appalachian Trail when he was nine after being left behind one weekend when his father and older siblings climbed Mount Katahdin, the northern end of the AT in their native Maine. This dream became an obsession, but then life got in the way, college, marriage, graduate school, career. By his late 20s, Jim had nearly convinced himself that taking a year off to hike the AT, Appalachian Trail, just wouldn't work. The dream was dying until an encounter with a disenchanted thru-hiker inspired him to revise his dream. Don't thru-hike the Appalachian Trail in one year. Take your time. Section hike it instead. Two Tents is Jim's account of living his dream for 21 consecutive years. Two Tents became his trail name. This book is much more than an account of Jim's encounters with bears and close calls with death. It's about how he became himself. Jim's path to self-discovery. How a man matures during his 30s and 40s. How love can be lost and found again. And how one embraces fatherhood. Jim Haskell studied history at Boston University. Earned a master's degree from Suffolk University. Jim has been a community development executive and a consultant for 30 years. Jim lives with his wife Donna and their son Jason north of Boston. Two Tents is his first book. You can find out more about Two Tents at twotents.net. Welcome Jim Haskell. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Jim, you wrote me a letter, and you said that you wanted to talk about this, and I thought it was a good idea because we have an Appalachian Trail that goes through our area, and I think a lot of people are interested in it, and a lot of people have envisioned walking it over the years. So let me start in the obvious place. It may turn out to be a little bit more Freudian than we would like. Why did your parents leave you on the Appalachian Trail without counting heads? (laughs) Well, actually, they didn't leave me on the Appalachian Trail. They left me behind on a camping trip. I was nine years old at the time. Uh, My siblings were all considerably older than I am. So uh, my nearest sister is seven years older. So she was 16 at the time. And then my two older siblings were older than than she was. Uh, So I was really too young to be climbing Katahdin at that time. But of course, you know, when you're one of four kids, even though you're the youngest, you know, you certainly think that you're part of the family and that you should be part of all of the family activities. So, you know, I have to say I was I was a little bit miffed that I was being left behind. I ended up spending it with an aunt and uncle and, and a favorite cousin of mine that weekend. But I was miffed that I was left behind. And certainly when they came back and they talked about all of the adventures that they had had on Katahdin, showed me the pictures that they had taken. The area above treeline looks like you're on Mars. You know, it's just an entirely different terrain than anything that I had experienced at that point. Uh, and I became intrigued by Katahdin and then also learned that Katahdin was the northern end of this thing called the Appalachian Trail, that the Appalachian Trail went to Georgia, which, you know, for me, a, a nine-year-old in, in central Maine who hadn't really traveled very far at that point, you know, Georgia might as well have been in, I don't know, Italy or China or something like that. It was a very long ways away. 
And the fact that you could have a hiking trail that went from Maine all the way to Georgia just seemed unfathomable to me. So I became intrigued by the trail. I started looking into it. I looked at our, our family atlas. And from there, it just really kind of became an obsession. And I really thought about at some point in my life that I was going to hike the trail. So uh, I'm glad you used both of those words, intrigued and obsessed. Is there a difference between being intrigued and being obsessed? And it sounds to me like you may have an issue here uh, <laughs> with having been left behind, you know, with your cousin, and you'll show them. Sure. Oh, oh, absolutely. I'm sure that, you know, I'm, I'm enough of a contrarian that that absolutely was part of it. And certainly, you know, if someone tells me that I can't do something, then, you know, I want to do it even more. So, so yeah, absolutely. So when you say you're contrarian, what does that mean? Can you trace that back to your early beginnings? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to, but certainly what I am willing to do is if someone has a point of view, then I'm willing to take the opposite point of view and think about that. Um, one thing that I participated in high school, you know, somewhat off topic, was the debate team. Uh, mm -hmm. I did that for four years. And one thing that was great about debate was that uh, sometimes you are on the affirmative and sometimes you are on the negative. So one round you might be arguing vehemently for one position, and then the next round you would be arguing just as vehemently for the exact opposite position. So I think it gave me the, the ability to kind of look at two sides to an issue and hopefully uh, be able to uh, um, you know, make some more reasoned judgments based on that fact. So let me ask you a very personal question. How sure. old are you now? I am 55. And where did you go to high school? Because that's uh, what everybody's screaming at the radio right now. Okay, fine. Herman High School, please don't laugh. It's just a little bit west of Bangor, Maine, so in the central part of the state. Interesting. Uh, my father's name was Herman, so it has a certain <laughs> It's M-O-N as opposed to M-A-N. Uh, oh, Herman. Well, but oh. we always called it Herman, so, but it would be more Herman, yes. Oh, that's very interesting. Right. Okay, so you, uh, let me describe how you look to people. You sort of don't have a lot of hair. You have a gray beard. You look professorial. Okay. And you're very thin. What's that about? Thank you for saying that I'm very thin. I don't necessarily uh, feel that way. Uh, if I ate what I wanted to eat, I'd weigh probably 350 pounds. Ain't that the truth for all of us? <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But certainly uh, doing something active like hiking the trail over a period of time was one of the reasons that I had to stay in shape. And there were a couple of times during that period when I fell out of shape. And when I went back onto the trail, uh, it told me that uh, I, you know, I better uh, work on my weight and, and work on my conditioning or else I wasn't going to be able to do the trail. You know, we were talking about your coming today, um, and I was talking to some people in the, in my office, and uh, I said the one thing that would have made me walk the Appalachian Trail alone is girls. <laughs> <laughs> Did you meet many girls on the trail? Uh, actually, well, not a whole lot. Actually, well, I started the trail with my now ex-wife. So the first year or so was, uh, it was actually kind of our, our joint dream to hike the trail. But unfortunately, we went our separate ways. And then in the period... Uh, Did you know from the trail, from your experience on the trail, it wasn't going to work? Actually, we got along best when we were camping and hiking. It was the rest of life that was, was, was the problem, right. unfortunately. Okay, let me stop you right there. And sure. Let's go back to the beginning. Sure. Tell me, is the Appalachian Trail, describe it to everybody, how did it get there? Is it nationally sanctioned? Tell us about the trail. Sure, absolutely. So the trail is about, as you said, almost 2,200 miles. It goes from Springer Mountain in Georgia all the way up to Mount Katahdin, Maine, which is you know, more or less in the uh, 
central northern part of Maine, and uh, and Springer Mountain is just a little bit north of Atlanta. Um, it then follows, uh, it really follows the ridge line of the Appalachian Mountains and the various ranges that, that make up the Appalachian Mountains and really follows, you know, more or less the high points of, of uh, the Appalachians all the way up to Maine. Now, what, um, is, the, what is the Appalachian Mountain Range? Uh, so the Appalachian Mountain Range is uh, actually, in fact, it is um, one of the oldest mountain ranges on the planet, if not the oldest. Uh, it actually at one time used to be the tallest mountain range on the planet. And actually, it's made up of the same mountains that are actually on the west coast of Europe and Africa. So when uh, there was one continent, one one supercontinent, this was the, the massive uh, mountain range that made up uh, that. And, and that mountain range split over time. And then, of course, the Atlantic Ocean, you know, came into the middle of it. And then over many, 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 you know, millions of years, the Appalachian Mountains have now eroded so that they're about a sixth of the height uh, that they used to be uh, at, at, at their crest. And so uh, they, in fact, uh, were at one time much higher than, you know, what the Rockies are now, the Himalayas or whatever. They, they were indeed this huge mountain range. What uh, are they and, made and, out of? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think there's a lot of granite, certainly. I would say primarily granite. Okay. So the second part of my question was, has the government, in its splendid wisdom, decided to sanction this Appalachian Trail and to keep it pure somehow? Sure. I mean, so as part of, and I want to say, I think it was in the early 90s, I, want to, I think it was uh, 93, there was uh, what's called the National Trails Act, uh, and the Appalachian Trail is one of the trails that's part of that National Trails Act, and there are a couple of other uh, noteworthy trails, Pacific Crest Trail, uh, Continental Divide Trail, are both also part of that, uh, you know, obviously out in the West. But the Appalachian Trail was actually created much earlier than that. Uh, it was actually, uh, well, it was it was the brainchild uh, in an article by a man by the name of uh, Benton Mackay uh, in 1921, and really from about uh, 21 until 37, 1937, uh, the, um, the Appalachian Trail Conference, which is now called the Appala Appalachian Trail Conservancy, oversaw the development of this trail, and it was largely a volunteer effort. So at that point, it wasn't sanctioned per se by the federal government. However, it did go over a lot of both national park and national forest land. So there always was this connection with national policy uh, as far as where the trail was located. But as far as it being then kind of officially sanctioned, and now it actually is part, is so so the Appalachian Trail is now technically a national park. And so from you know one end to the other, just like you know Shenandoah National Park or Acadia National Park, or, you know, uh, uh, one of the other, other national parks. But it wasn't that until the National Trails Act. When I come from New York City on the train to my home in the Berkshires, mm -hmm. there is always a stop that is always fascinating. You say, Appalachian Trail. Okay, now, yep. now there must be parts because of development of the trail in which it gets very, very thin in order to keep it going as a trail. Absolutely. So, yeah, some places that corridor is is exceedingly thin, and in, so some some places it's it's you know maybe a hundred feet wide. So, absolutely. So places like that. In fact, I'm very familiar with that stop. I think it's in Pauling, New York. Yes. And that's right on the trail, and I went right across those tracks as as part of my hike. And it's not all that it's owned uh, necessarily, but there, in some places there are easements uh, with private landowners, but that still allow. But it's 
it's but it's a permanent corridor that allows the trail to pass over those, those parts. And certainly uh, where it's going from parks to parks, it had to do things like, you know, go over highways and, and through, um, you know, private property and whatever. But those agreements have been negotiated over time. Have those been difficult? I mean, if somebody buys some property oh, and, and, you know, and they, they don't want everybody walking on their land. Absolutely. In fact, there's been, I mean, you know, there's been a long history of land acquisitions. And in fact, over time, what was originally the trail is now, the trail has been relocated oftentimes because of that. And then, you know, there, there were times for a long time, there was a section in Pennsylvania where you literally walked on the road for 16 miles because they hadn't come up with the agreements in order to be able to you know, take the trail off-road and all of the, the landowner agreements that you needed in order to be able to, uh, to make that happen. Eventually, over many decades, um, you know, through the, the efforts of you know, the local maintaining clubs and, and, and through the ATC, the you know, Appalachian Trail Conservancy, those agreements were, were created, were negotiated, and so, and so therefore now that trail corridor is, is off-road. So you know, it's, it's been a long history of trying to maintain the trail, but also recognizing that it's you know, cheek to jowl in a very developed area. You're on the eastern seaboard, so you have all of those conflicts. And I think it's just it's been a it's been a you know, continued you know, effort along that regard. We're talking to Jim Haskell, author of Two Tents, 21 Years of Discovery on the Appalachian Trail. Hey, Jim, there are, you know, jokes or eh, not so jokes told about the Appalachian crowd. What's that all about? Well, I mean, there is a very interesting kind of subculture, uh, which is, I mean, hikers in general, and certainly I'm, I'm, I'm part and parcel of that. I mean, you've got to be a certain type of person, and maybe people would say, you know, a little bit crazy in order to be willing to, you know, go out into nature for days on end, not take a shower, not have, you know, many creature comforts. What's the longest you've ever been out on the The longest I ever was out was six days. Six um, days? Six days, correct, yeah. 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 Well, you could get by without a shower for six oh, days. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I you know, certainly did. I mean, uh, I'm sitting but... in the room with you. I don't smell anything foul. <laughs> well, I assure you, I've taken the shower within the past six days. So. Yeah. Right, right. So what compels you to go out? It's a lot of things. I mean, certainly it's a challenge. It's a physical challenge. Uh, you know, there are mountains to be climbed quite literally. And so part of it is that and, you know, maybe the same thing that motivates runners or, you know, uh, you know people who uh, get involved in exercise in general. And, and I think, though, uh, certainly for me, and I think for most others, it's a, a way to commune with nature in a way that you, you know, typically would not be able to. And, you know, even though the trail certainly is never very far, you know, as the crow flies from civilization, quote unquote, when you're out there, you feel, you know, much more part of nature uh, than, you know, you do if if you're not on the trail. And so that and that solitude, that ability to just kind of appreciate what's around you, sometimes just to be able to focus on, you know, am I going to be able to climb up this particularly difficult section and have absolutely nothing else that's important to you at that moment. You know, especially for someone who, you know, I had relatively responsible positions, you know, that I've dealt with in my career. And being able to just kind of go back to the fundamentals, that was very important for me to be able to do periodically. Did you ever hurt yourself? I did not. I was incredibly lucky. So I had a couple of minor sprained ankles, but nothing that, you know, where, where I couldn't walk them off. Um, so I was, I was incredibly lucky. Let me ask you about things I would be scared about, and you can respond to each of them 
bears. I came, although I wasn't injured, I came very close to being injured. I had an encounter with a bear in the Smokies. I have to say it was all my fault and not the bear's fault in the least. In fact, the bear, if anything, helped me out. So I was hiking along. It was kind of an easy section. And, you know, like being on any easy section, you know, I kind of started daydreaming and Mm. my mind was off on, you know, just kind of in, in a different cloud. And all of a sudden, I heard this thunderous roar, and I Uh looked up, and uh, (laughs) there was a very large uh, male black bear that was about 25, 30 feet away from me. And the bear was partially up the tree. There was a large tree, and, and the tree was right next to the trail. So I was just down a little bit from where this tree was and where this bear was. Uh, So the bear had come up this tree maybe and was about uh, five feet off the ground or so, but he was just kind of clinging clinging to the tree, looking at me and going, you know, basically, what the heck are you doing, you know, in my territory? And obviously, I think, had climbed that tree just to be able to. He was actually, you know, effectively running away from me the only way that he could. But anyway, he was there and I was much too close to him. Fortunately, my wife now and I had the year before gone to Alaska as part of our honeymoon. Um, We had actually spent several days in a bear preserve there. So I knew that, I basically knew what to do or not do around bears. Uh, Which one, is what? Well, so one we thing is- We have one in our backyard, so I'd like to know. Okay, fine. So there are four rules with bears. The first rule is don't mess with their food, and the second rule is don't mess with their cubs. Okay, uh, wait, wait a second. Let's take each of these. Sure. How would you possibly mess with their food? You know, if the bear's eating, I don't know, a salmon or, you know, a raccoon or you something like that- You wouldn't want to steal it. You them. wouldn't want to go and try to steal it. I mean, you know- and obviously, it seems pretty obvious, but you know, I'm you know dealing with fundamentals here. Okay, go ahead. That's rule number one. Don't rule take their one. food away. Don't take their food away. Rule number two: don't mess with their cubs. And that also is pretty. And that obvious. could be inadvertent. Right? Absolutely right. In fact, I certainly have had uh, rangers in Alaska say, "If you see bear cubs." run the other way as fast as you possibly can because mom isn't too far behind and she's not going to be happy. And then number three is don't get into a bear's personal space. And that was the rule that at that point in time I was violating. So I was, once again, 25, 30 feet away from that bear, and I was very much in that bear's personal space. So the bear was feeling uncomfortable uh, that I was that close. And then the fourth rule is don't run away from a bear. And mm, and so you might and so you might think, well, you know, there's three and four don't make a whole lot of sense, you know. <laughs> you know, if you're if if you're in their space, then you know the best way to, to get out of their space is to run away, but you're not supposed to run away. And the reason is they are predators by nature. And when they see something fleeing, they assume that that thing that's fleeing is prey. And so their instinct then is to run after prey. So you don't want to become, you don't want to become prey. So in this situation, uh, what I did was uh, I basically became like a rock for several minutes. I did not move a muscle. And I got to the point, I just was looking at the bear, obviously, and got to the point that he was at the point that he was starting to ignore me. I then took a very small step back. He immediately tensed up, focused on me again. I once again became like a rock. How did you uh, know it was a he? 
just by the size. He yeah, was yeah. A, immense. He was immense. He was, I mean, it, he was a big bear. And I would say, you know, had, had quite a few years on him. But eventually uh, he, you know, didn't seem so interested in me. And I was able to just very, very slowly back away from him. Fortunately, there was a place where the trail curved probably about 20 or 25 feet behind me. And I was able to get beyond that curve and kind of out of his sight. And then eventually, and it took probably well over an hour, but eventually that bear uh, ended up climbing up that tree. And there were actually some hikers who were, who were behind me who ended up catching up with me that, that I had passed a little time before. And so the entire group, we were able to go under the tree. By this point, the bear was way, way up in the tree. And you know, we were able to get by uh, unscathed. Um, now, what would you have done? If the bear acted unpredictably and came at you? Well, I would have probably just rolled over, tried to play dead, see if, and and lots of times bears will charge without actually attacking. So uh, hope that that would be good. And then what I've heard is that, especially with a black bear, because they're a little bit smaller than than the brown bears um, out in the West, that with black bears, if they really are attacking you, then you fight as hard as you can, and maybe that will be good enough. But fortunately, that did not happen. I was not looking forward to that. Just in case, and obviously, uh, uh, folks listening to this who might you know also know things about bears, the one thing that I didn't do in that situation was I should have identified myself. I should have talked to the bear. Hello. Um, exactly. Hello, bear. Yeah. Something like you know, obviously in a calm voice but just so that the bear would recognize me as human because they don't have particularly good eyesight. Uh, so that was the only thing that I did wrong, I think, in that situation, besides getting myself into the situation. But what uh, could you have done? Time. I mean, you were walking along. But right? I'm quite sure that the bear was probably looking at me as I was walking along. And like I said at the outset, I was in this daydream, so I just kind of wasn't paying attention to the trail. And I think that the bear was probably there. And if I had seen him, if I had been back, you know, 50 feet or so, then it wouldn't have been as nearly as, as you know, oh, as, as dire. Keep your eyes open. So keep your eyes open. You know, be aware of your surroundings. I wasn't in that situation. And I think then when I got so close, the bear literally went up the tree and roared basically, you know, and it was his wings, you know, of saying, you know, you stupid fool. You know, yeah. don't you know I'm a bear? You know, that was, that, you know, that was, I think, what that bear was trying to do. So as I said at the beginning, uh, the bear really in this situation helped me out. Uh, I was I was the one who who didn't act the way he should have. Are people allowed to hunt on the Appalachian Trail? There are places where you can hunt, and and I don't know all of the regulations and whether or not you can actually hike on the trail itself, but certainly uh, the corridor is narrow enough and in places you're in national forest or private lands or whatever where hunting is allowed. So certainly I have hiked where there are hunters present and, you know, even... You know, that can scare you, right? That certainly can scare you. You know, I mean, you know, you wear hunter orange um, and I try to avoid kind of the open hunting seasons. Uh, I have certainly hiked during like bow season and whatever. I think those tend to be more experienced hunters. And so, um, you know, I've, I've never had an, had an issue. You said uh, bow season. What is bow season? Uh, uh, where someone is limited to bows and arrows. Oh, bows and arrows. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're talking to Jim Haskell. Interesting stuff. Two tenths, 21 years of discovery on the Appalachian Trail. 
Okay, Jim, so we mentioned bears, we mentioned humans. Now let me mention to you snakes. I was very lucky. I mean, there are certainly poisonous snakes, especially down south. Yeah, well, Um, I was in the Blue Ridge, and my guide showed me a picture, and he said, shh, don't tell anybody, of a copperhead coiled up. Yep, absolutely. So black snakes, copperheads, uh, whatever. I never saw a poisonous snake on the trail. Now, there were hikers who were either right before me or right after me. And, you know, if you're uh, swapping stories, uh, you know, that, that evening or whatever. And they said, oh, didn't you see the snake, you know, right next, next to the trail? And I had been there 15, 20 minutes before or after once again, and I didn't see the snake. Now, was it a case of, you know, like the bear? I have absolutely no idea. Probably, well, they can be probably pretty, better if, they can if be I didn't camouf- know. They can be pretty well camouflaged. They can, absolutely. So I never saw a poisonous snake on the trail. I did have a snake bite kit uh, with me in my first aid kit all the time. What do you do if you get bit by a snake? Uh, <laughs> you open up the snake bite kit and read the instructions. Uh, <laughs> so I've heard that the theory yeah. of what to do has been changed. Has the old been, days yeah. they used to say do a tourniquet. Now yeah. I heard something that you want not supposed to do a tourniquet. Yeah, and and I've heard the same thing. So yeah, yeah. That, I, I think that's why I, I'm probably not the best person to to answer that question. Um, yeah. Uh, because I I know that it's it's changed over time, and it's also a matter of trying to stay calm. And but um, you certainly recognize it. It could have happened. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Did you ever meet anybody who it did happen to that got, got bitten? Not that I can recall off the top of my head, no. Okay, what about other creatures like raccoons? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Raccoons are uh, kind of the nemesis of uh, campsites in, in particular. Uh-huh. Uh, so certainly, uh, well, and, and in fact, one time, and not on the Appalachian Trail, but when my brother and I were, were hiking uh, in Acadia, this was many years ago, the National Park in Maine, and we didn't put our food up when we went to bed. And within an hour, there were probably a dozen raccoons that were you know eating uh, what was left over of, of our food at that time. So that was kind of how I learned about raccoons. Now, they could be vicious. Oh, absolutely. They can be. Yeah. 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 And in fact, I mean, what people will tell you is that, you know, you're much more likely to, you know, uh, have an encounter with an animal of that size, a raccoon, uh, something along that line, than you are, you know, actually a bear or or something like that. But of course, encounters with bears is, is, you know, so much more dramatic that that's what people focus on. As long as we're going through the menagerie, there have always been, other than the Birchers, there have been stories about sightings of mountain lions. Yeah, I, and I never saw uh, a mountain lion or any, any large cat. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us about the tent you were staying in itself. The name of the book is Two Tents. Why Two Tents? Well, that is my trail name, and Two Tents, um, uh, and I got that trail name uh, because um, on a hike that I did, actually, this was in uh, 2007, I believe, and it was the time when I was particularly out of shape. I was really struggling up a mountain called Chestnut Ridge up to a, a cabin on a Chestnut Knob. And where's that? Uh, that's in Virginia. I'm sorry. Uh, and I, I was hiking this with my niece. And it was one of those days that I, I was just struggling and I would go for five or 10 minutes and I would stop and just have to rest and whatever. And so we were taking forever to get up this mountain because I was in bad shape and, and I was not getting up this mountain easily. Got to the top and started unpacking um, my backpack 
backpack and took out my sleeping bag. I had a, a three-person tent, which is what we would normally sleep in, that was lashed to the side of the of the backpack. But inside was my sleeping bag. I brought my sleeping bag out, and there was something underneath. And it was an additional tent that I had brought that I had forgotten to take out from a previous hike when I had packed for this one. So I had gone up this mountain in bad shape. Uh, I was carrying additional weight that I didn't need to take. Uh, it was you know, frustrating and revealing and kind of uh, all at the same time. It got me focused back on, you know, on, on what I needed to focus on. But anyway, so so carrying two tents was how I got the it's trail like name. The wrong, and kind, kind it's of, like, kind it's of like wrong way Cargan who ran the wrong way. Absolutely, exactly. You got it. So, right. so that's the two tents. So tell us about setting up the tents. You know, I bought a really good tent, took my boy, and we was in the Cub Scouts, and set this thing up and I was so inept at it that everybody came over and helped me out. So how hard is it to set this thing up? Uh, actually, well, I mean, I think the first time it's always really hard. Yeah. Uh, and especially now because, you know, they don't look like, uh, you know, the tents that, you know, you see. They're not and, pup tents. They're not pup tents, exactly. Although, in truth, the pup tents, I think, are harder to set up than these are. Yeah. Um, so the tents have, um, you slide poles that are collapsible, but the, you know, the poles then come together and then they slide through a series of sleeves and grommets and and uh, and and whatever, and then if you get those all aligned, you know correctly, and that's what you have to learn the first time, then those become the frame, and then the tent really then hangs from the frame of those poles. If you need to, you stake it down, and uh, really you're all set to go. So actually, in a way, once once you learn how to put them up, they're really almost foolproof. So in the middle of the night, you're in the tent. Maybe your your niece who is dependent on you is with you on this hike is there is there has there ever been an incident in which you hear something or you see something scratching at the tent or something and scares the hell out of you i no i've never had something like that where it's where it's scratching on the side of side of the tent so that's good I did have, uh, once again, not on the Appalachian Trail, but one time that my wife and I were uh, in Baxter State Park, and I had a uh, a moose that was, let's say, let's say, doing its business just a few feet away from our head in the tent that we were uh, staying in. Uh, so that was rather interesting, you know, to hear uh, running water, let's say, early in the morning. <laughs> so mooses can be big, I mean really big. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, in fact, what I've heard is that you're, you're, more, you're more likely to be injured by a moose than a bear on the trail. And uh, yeah, they, they are huge. I mean, they're the size of a, of a, of a large cow. And, you know, especially uh, in the fall and the males, they get into what's called the rut, which is, you know, their uh, mating season. And so they can become aggressive. I mean, in large part, they tend to be pretty docile. Uh, and, you know, if you leave them alone, then they'll leave you alone. And they're not naturally predators. But certainly they are big. And, uh, you know, if you happen to be uh, trampled by a moose, uh, you certainly would know it. One time I was in a Volkswagen going from my house in Great Barrington through Egremont, Massachusetts. And I was in front of the old Egremont store and I was stopped for some reason, stoplight, stop sign, there was no stoplight. And I happened to look at, to the right, I sent something on the right, and all I saw were these gigantic legs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't even see the body of the thing, it was yep. just huge. Yep. 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of kind of like a cow that's on, you know, the body of a on cow stilts. on stilts or the legs of a horse. Absolutely. One incident, and this was um, my sister was um, helping me get to a trailhead, and she was going to uh, anyway drive me to, to the other trailhead so I could do a, a particular section of the trail. And we were in northern Maine, which certainly uh, uh, there are a lot of moose in northern Maine. And so I was driving ahead of her. I saw a moose uh, come out, um, um, you know, kind of in my in my uh, peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, saw saw the moose come out. The moose, as it came to the road, uh, then turned and started running alongside the road. Yeah, yeah, that's the worst part. Absolutely, yeah. You do that. That's how you get into these accidents. Exactly right. And then she came in behind me, and so we both, and and fortunately, you know, we were all able to slow down, and the moose didn't run right in front of us. But you know, but certainly hitting a moose is. Well, I mean, that's fact, the end. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there have been you know a number of fatalities uh, that you know as a result. Absolutely, you, you know, find, both for the moose and people. Do you find anything religious about this world? I'm not in general a religious person, but certainly there are spiritual moments. I don't think you can be out on the trail and not feel that nature is there's a living, breathing element to nature itself that is you know in that's kind of in a greater context than, you know, we as, 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 you know, as, as mere humans or each of the living things in and of itself. Uh, so I know that that's probably not any standard religion, but, you know, I, I, I don't think you can, can go out there and not feel that, you know, kind of that spirit. Jim Haskell, have you ever found yourself fearful? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple of times. One was... The bear. Well, (laughs) good point. Yeah, three times. But one was when I was coming off of the presidentials in New Hampshire. It's when I had climbed Mount Washington and I was staying over at uh, Lake of the Clouds Hut, which is just below Washington. And the following day, I was going to come off the mountain. And as I came out of the hut and was was uh, hiking on the trail that I that I needed to in order to once again come off the mountain, um, it's kind of coming across this this plain. Uh, it was um, very clouded, and you could only see 10, 15 feet ahead of you. So I was having difficulty picking the trail along the way and having to be very cautious about staying on the trail. And in the far distance, I started hearing thunder coming my way, mm. and of course. You know, not only then am I, you know, not just under a thunderstorm, I'm actually in a thunderstorm in that, you know, situation. What do you do in that case? Uh, what I did, I mean, what you're really supposed to do, if the thunderstorm comes by, you, the thing you do not want to be is the highest thing around. So what you're supposed to do is try to hunker down uh, as much as you can and yet not be next to the highest thing that's around because that will be then what gets what what gets what hit gets hit so you so you see a big tree you should not be in the big tree. if if the big tree is sitting out by itself in the middle of a field absolutely that's the worst place to be on the other hand uh, if there is a grove of trees yeah. uh, then that's probably where you want to be pick the not biggest tree exactly but pick the not biggest tree in that grove of trees and then the lightning is is more likely to once again strike the strike the highest thing. They say there's no atheist in a foxhole. Uh, <laughs> when that thunderstorm was going around you, did you find yourself reaching out? Uh, no, I found myself uh, just trying to get off that ridge as quickly as I possibly could uh, in in that moment. So that moment, I was just trying to get off the ridge uh, onto the trail that was below the ridge, which I knew then would uh, make me not the tallest thing around. Because uh, as when I was on that 
on that ridge. Uh, the rocks weren't particularly high there, so I was the tallest thing. And so I, I really focused on that. And fortunately for me, with about maybe two or three minutes to spare, uh, I was able to, to come down off the ridge. And then I was just merely in the storm. I wasn't kind of the primary target of the storm. And that was, uh, uh, that was what I was really focused on. So you wrote this book, Two Tents, 21 Years of Discovery on the Appalachian Trail by our friend Jim Haskell. Did you keep notes as you went along? Actually, I did not. I, I did have some notes, um, not so much because I, I was planning on writing a book. I actually uh, decided to write the book fairly late into the process. But in fact, most of the trail, no, I didn't have any kind of journal or notes. And what I did was, um, when I made the decision, or, or was deciding whether or not I was going to write the book, I just sat down and tried to remember everything that I could about each of the hikes um, that I was on and did that over probably about a four or five month long process. So, you know, so sometimes, you know, some incident that you would, that I'd forgotten would come back to me and then I would, you know, sit down and just fill in those details uh, as time went along. Uh, and through that, then I was able to really uh, remember well, I think, you know, the stories and, you know, number of the stories, certainly not in detail every hike, but a lot of the hikes, I remembered uh, what happened in, you know, in, in considerable detail and was able to um, uh, put it into the book. Did you self-publish the book? Yes, I did. Yeah. Well, well I, or I'm working with a self-publisher. Yes. Uh, yeah, so right. main, so main author's publishing. Yes. Yeah, uh, basically, although, you self-publish. Right. What led you to do that? In other words, did you feel you owed something to your public or was it ego? What, what made you do it? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, I thought I had some stories to tell and wa you know, wanted to tell them. So, I mean, certainly there's there's an element of ego in that. I don't think I don't think anyone who's written a memoir uh, can say otherwise. You know, on the other hand, what I really thought was and, and, and looking at other hiking memoirs that are out there, most of them are done from the perspective of the through hikers and you know, just to, to digress. 17 months on the Appalachian Trail. Well, actually, no, less than 12 months on the okay. Appalachian Trail. So, so doing the Appalachian Trail in, you know, in a calendar year. And what's kind of funny about the Appalachian Trail is that actually the vast majority of people who have completed the trail do it that way. About 80% of uh, uh, through, uh, hikers. Uh, through hikers. So, yeah. so people who have the wherewithal to, uh, to be able to take off a year and to hike the trail. And there are relatively few, only, only a couple of, of books that are written from the perspective of someone, of, of a section hiker, of, of myself, someone who's done it over several years. And I thought that that was a different perspective and a different story to tell. And, you know, one thing then about, you know, those other types of, you know, th those other memoirs by, by through hikers, you know, that's one point of a person's life and kind of the issues that that person is dealing with at that point in their life and their experiences on the trail and, and you know, and, and, and how they perceive it. And what was, I think, somewhat unique about my situation was, you know, I did this over 21 years. I, I started out when I was 30. I ended when, when I was 50. You're um, not going back? Um, no, I'm, I'm probably not doing another hike of the trail. Can you remember, Jim, a moment of ecstasy? Oh, absolutely. In fact, not too far from here, uh, where the trail is uh, near the, um, on the Massachusetts-Connecticut border, and it's a uh, place called, I think, Bear Rock Falls or so something like that, had camped out 
overnight there. And there's a, a wonderful um, a rock outcropping looking east and kind of an absolute wing. And you're looking at more or less over a flat plain uh, to the east. I woke up early enough in the morning that it was completely dark. And I just sat on and went out to that outcropping, sat there and, and literally watched a sunrise from the sky being entirely black until you know the sun had actually risen and just witness that whole process in slow motion and you know and obviously it's something that happens every day but i don't think you know many people actually get the opportunity to watch it happen you know from beginning to end and and to really appreciate that and that was just a a, a super moment jim haskell tell us what you would recommend to put into our backpacks when you leave Oh, boy. Uh, well, I mean, something that I think is extremely important. Now, uh, saying this, uh, I am a pack rat when it comes to, to backpacks, and, and, and there's a whole other school of, of ultralights out there who would argue against me. But I basically have three rules when I hike, and this is a day hike, a backpack, or whatever. One is that uh, I have a first aid kit, uh, and that is both if I get injured, but also if somebody else on the trail sure. is, is injured. Uh, have you ever had to repair somebody else? I've been involved. I've never had to do major beyond, you know, maybe like a Band-Aid or okay. something like that for somebody. I was involved in a rescue um, on Baxter State Park, Mount Katahdin. But that was, and and so I was one of the folks who was helping to carry the stretcher. But that was what happened. A, a woman who had fallen, broken her ankle, and you know she wasn't going to be able to get off the trail. Uh, and so her friend had gone forward. This happened ahead of where my hiking party was. Uh, so we actually came came upon her when you know she she was there. She wasn't in tremendous pain. It wasn't life threatening, but she needed to be carried off the mountain. Uh, and it was, you know, not a particularly easy place for her to be carried off. Uh, but anyway, uh, the ranger and some other folks uh, came up with the stretcher. By that time, there were, I think, eight people uh, who were there uh, who were uh, available to uh, help carry the stretcher down. And uh, so I was involved with helping to, you know, helping to do that carry what I learned from that. And, you know, it was, it was you know, in many ways, ideal circumstances. Uh, we were in the state park. Uh, the ranger was there, well-trained, had all of the equipment, everything else. And we had to carry her less than two miles. And it took us over four hours uh, to carry her off the mountain. Uh, so what I certainly learned from that is, you know, if you get injured out there, and even if, you know, by, by, by mileage, you're not very far away from, from help, Help is still a long ways away, and it's going to take a long time uh, in order for uh, for you to be able to get to a hospital or whatever. So you you need to be careful. So what else in what else is in the backpack? So uh, the other thing that I always carry in my backpack, and probably part of part of my trail name, I always carry a tent with me, even if I'm just out on a day hike. Huh. And I figured that yes, my intention might be to be out on a day hike. But I don't know if something might happen, and I have to stay overnight. How much does this pack weigh? A typical day pack probably weighs 15 to 20 pounds. Okay. And, and in fact, a lot of thru-hikers are carrying that kind of weight for their backpacks. So once again, I'm, I'm, I'm a pack rat. So that's— um, What about cell phones? We have this, we have this whole 
you know, revision in the way we do things. Cell phones could take pictures for you. Yep. They could keep you out of trouble. Yep. God forbid something happens. Yep. And and what's funny about cell phones, and of course, you know, when I first started hiking the trail, you know, no one had them. And even if you had them, you know, there wouldn't have been any service you know, no in, any, anywhere on, on the trail. Now everybody carries a cell phone, uh, you know, I, maybe except for the rare uh, exception. But by and large, everybody carries a cell phone. You know, cell service still can be spotty certainly in more remote areas, um, but it is certainly a safety issue. On the other hand, and I think, and there's, there have been, you know, a number of articles about this as well that, that I've read where, you know, there can be an over-reliance on cell phones. Sure. And so, you know, you, you still have to have your wits about you. And how do you charge them? Well, that's a that's a big problem. So absolutely. Not I'm, really, because we on the fun drives that here at WMZ have been giving away uh, radios that you can use to charge your cell phone. You're Nobody absolutely right. should be without one. You're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right. And I should have remembered that. And then the third thing is um, uh, I always carry rain gear, uh, once again, regardless if I think it's going to rain uh, or not. Good point. Now, when I was in the Boy Scouts and we used to go on hikes, I had, of course, a, a sleeping bag. But it was the kind of sleeping bag that could get very, very wet. Do they sell them now so they don't get wet? Yeah, I mean, the materials are much more water resistant, uh, much, you know, they are much lighter. I mean, the technology around hiking and backpacking has just improved. And, you know, and, and the synthetic materials uh, that they use now are, are, are just amazing. Both for uh, you know their thermal capacity, their their weight, uh, their ability to resist uh, you know uh, resist water, uh, you know all of those things have certainly improved just just dramatically. And where do you go to get them? Do you go to a, a store or do you do it online? How do you do it? Uh, I and probably you know this is just because I'm old fashioned. I tend to go to a store because you know I want to look feel. Sure. Uh, on the other hand, certainly you can also purchase them online, and certainly you know, I'm sure that that's a generational issue. So how has this helped you in terms of your marriage? <laughs> well, not maybe, to maybe. <laughs> not to be too personal. No, no, and that's and that's and that's fine. I think that well, and you, you know, probably I, I don't know if my wife would give you a, a, a different answer. You know, may, maybe it was good to have me out of the house so she didn't have to deal. With but me there with are wives who there are wives who resent their husbands oh, going out on these jaunts. And absolutely, and 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 my wife was incredibly understanding. And of course, you know, at this time we were, you know, throughout this time we were raising my son, uh, and so of course, you know. Then the parenting uh, was on her during those times when I was away. Uh, you know, I think that she knew that this was how I recharge my batteries. And, you know, she appreciated that. Uh, she was willing to make uh, the sacrifice. Um, and in turn, you know, I had, you know, I found ways uh, to, uh, you know, give her breaks. You know, my son and I would sometimes, you know, go off and visit, you know, a sister who lived away or a family friend or, or, or whatever. And so we would take some some vacations and give her some time to herself. So I think it, it you know enabled us to you know compromise and find a way that you know both of us could recognize that the other one needed you know needed some time, needed some time to themselves, uh, and that we were able to do that. Are there people like coworkers or others who think you're nuts? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, oh, there's yeah, and and probably there are a lot more people who think that I'm nuts and you know just haven't told me yet. Mm-hmm. So does it change the way that you relate to other human beings? Um, Sure. I think it's made me much more tolerant uh, of other people. Um, uh, And and, and I don't, 
but um, you know, I, I think I tended to be um, more pigheaded and set in my ways, and maybe that was just youth. Um, but one of the things I, I really liked about the trail was um, there's nothing entirely good nor nothing entirely bad on the trail. There's always kind of a, a, a nuance to well, it. Well, there's always deliverance. I mean, you have to, you could run into a bunch of real nuts. I mean, and absolutely. And maybe you could have something that would be entirely bad. Fortunately, I did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but you know, you know, sunshine is great, but then, you know, too much sunshine and, and you don't get uh, any rain and, uh, all of the springs dry up, and you don't have water, and you can't you you, you can't hike the trail. You, you know, carry so, a canteen. Absolutely, yeah. Of course, you're you're carrying. You're and how carrying do you know water. that the water is always good? Uh, that is that is a huge issue. I mean, certainly one of the things that is that is uh, of tremendous value is there are a number of uh, trail guides that are out there that both will tell you uh, where the water is uh, and how you you know and 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 how you can get it and and what times of year that it might be there or might not be there. Well, is there is there ever a time that you're told not to drink certain kinds of water because it's Poisonous? Certainly, that um, I, I haven't heard poisonous per se, but um, uh, you know, like that it's that it's alkali or, 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 or arsenic. But well, that's true. But certainly, there are places where the water is not potable, uh, and even with treatment, isn't potable, uh, and so you shouldn't you shouldn't be drinking. Do you carry salt pills or, um, or, or water pills or? Whatever? Yes. Uh, so I have. Uh, I carry a filter, uh, so but that will only do so much. So so the water still has to be in relatively good shape, uh, in order for uh, it, it you know for the filter to be able to do you know work its magic. Uh, I also carry iodine pills, so sure. so the pills that uh, can treat the waters. Uh, so it's kind of two methods, and if something looks a little bit questionable, then lots of times I will um, you know uh, treat it with iodine, and then also uh, even after I filtered it. Uh, to try to make it, uh, uh, you know, make sure that uh, that there's nothing in there. Okay, now I only have a couple of minutes, and I really, a couple of minutes, I, I wanted to ask you about the rangers. You've mentioned them several times, mm-hmm. park rangers. Have they been helpful? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, they are, they are wonderful, um, both certainly for the service uh, that, that they provide, uh, but also um, for the education uh, that they provide. So, are there enough of them? Oh, uh, um. I mean, certainly, whenever I've had to find one, I've been able to find one. I guess that I don't. I don't know if that's that's a that's an answer about are there enough of them or or whatever. But but I I've never um, uh, in the instances where it was vital that they be there, there was somebody there. Did you ever think that uh, that was a job for you? No, um, I appreciated being out in nature, but I also appreciated, um, uh, uh, you know, having creature comforts. So I, I think, I think that's a, that's a, you know, uh, hats off to the folks who do that, but it really wasn't for me. And you mentioned very quickly that when you needed them, can you well, give me a one-minute story when you needed them? Well, sir, what I just talked about was was the instance with the, um, uh, with the, the woman who uh, oh, yeah, uh, needed to be sure. carried off, off, off the mountain. Sure. Well, we've been talking with Jim Haskell. The name of the book is Two Tents, 21 Years of Discovery on the Appalachian Trail. You can go to Amazon and find it there or other places. And, Jim, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, I like people who are obsessed. I have a little of that myself. So um, thank you so much for doing it. And thank you so much for having me. This This has been a pleasure. We've been talking to Jim Haskell, author of Two Tents, 21 years of discovery on the Appalachian Trail. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today.
You've been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org. Thank you.